0: We are looking at the Sermon on the Plain, which you're used to hearing the Sermon on the Mount. This is very similar. It's in Luke chapter 6, so please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. The Sermon on the Mount, which you're more familiar with, is in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the Plain is also probably a high place in Galilee, a high flat place, maybe a little bit like uh, Antelope Valley high plateau, probably not that big. but And you'll notice if you read the two sermons, they're very similar and yet some significant differences. I believe that Jesus preached two separate sermons here and probably preached a version of this sermon many times as he traveled around Galilee. And so praise God that we have Luke's recording of the Sermon on the Plain and Matthew's recording of the Sermon on the Mount, and we can harmonize the the two sermons together. We can harmonize our Gospels to get a fuller picture of Jesus' life and ministry. My wife and I had the opportunity last night to go out on a date. It's been a while. Yeah, it's it's been a while. Movie and a dinner. Yes, I mean movie and a dinner because I want to pay the matinee fee. Because <laughs> you can then you can eat more, right, at, at the dinner. So uh, we saw La La Land. Looking for a good upbeat, fun musical, and uh, what a perfect name, La La Land. Right, that's L A. La La Land. People from all over the world flock here so they can live in la-la land, to escape reality, looking for happiness by chasing their dreams of being rich and famous. And so instead of living in reality, they have to make movies to change reality to fit their perspective so that it can seem that their dreams are coming true. And so we're thankful for Hollywood and the movies that they make and the brief entertainment we get. And we're also thankful that they're no longer running the country. Um, (laughs) Ooh, boo. If we're honest with ourselves, though, in our fallenness, we all want to live in la-la land. We all want to determine reality on our own. And we expect the world to conform to our perspective of reality. And as Christians, we are learning to not do that. That God has determined reality. He defines reality. He's revealed reality in the Word of God and in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, reality in the flesh. No fake news there, right? Isn't that what all the talk's about? Fake news. No, no fake news here. All real people. You could take this to the bank. You could take Jesus' words to the bank. And we all say, Amen. And then he gets up and starts his sermon with, Happy are the poor and the weeping and the hungry and the people who are hated. And we go, Hmm, I'm not sure if I like this reality show. That's not my idea of happiness. And so, the master preacher Using hyperbole to grab our attention, to smack us back into reality. What is happiness truly? I know our Bibles say blessed. If you're here last week, you got a long exposition of why the Greek and the Hebrew word there is actually translated happy, and that centuries ago, happiness meant something deeper than. I'm so happy I had a great slice of pizza. It's not the kind of happiness Jesus is talking about. Although if you find the kind of happiness Jesus is talking about, you're then free to enjoy a good slice of pizza because it's in its proper place now. It's not an ultimate thing anymore. I was like, oh, shoo, I could still eat pizza. Unless your doctors got you on one of those gluten-free, uh, dairy-free, flavor-free diets. Um, then you'll have to find your happiness in other other material things. But if your happiness is in Christ, it won't matter so much. It won't matter so much. Happiness or blessedness, according to God, isn't necessarily what the world considers to be happiness or blessedness. In fact, many people who appear to be happily blessed by God in this world because of their wealth and social status may actually find out When trials hit, or sadly in the next life, when it's too late, that their happiness was built on a foundation of sand. And that's how Jesus will end the Sermon on the Plain and the Sermon on the Mount. The whole story about the two builders. One who built his house, his life, on the words of Jesus, and one who built his house on a different foundation. And it's not some kind of existential build your life on Jesus, like, ooh, that sounds deep. No, he's really clear. He says, if you hear my words and you do them, I will liken you to a wise builder who builds his house on the rock. And so he's talking about trust and faith and obedience here. That leads to the happy life. Listen to the guy who's been to heaven. And He created the heavens and the earth. He knows. He created you. He knows you want to be happy. He's not trying to make you unhappy. He just knows that you are seeking happiness in all the wrong places. So, trust this man who loves you so much He would give his life for you. That even though the words He's saying might at first seem offensive and Wrong and almost cruel. Really? The happy people are hungry and weeping and poor and are hated? Uh, if that's happiness, I don't want it. Now, l- listen to what he has to say. The beginning of the sermon is meant to arrest your attention, to get you out of your agenda and listen to his agenda, the right agenda. There are people in this world who have everything the world says should bring happiness. And I think the lady on the video would probably say she she had everything. And even from a Christian perspective, she had everything. And you don't know if you're truly happy because of Jesus or your things until you lose your things. And I wish there was some other way. But there isn't. And so James says, count it all joy, brothers, when you encounter various trials because it leads to perseverance. How do I know I really am counting on Jesus for my happiness? Because most of the people in this room, I know some are are struggling financially, some are struggling with health issues, some are struggling with um, relationship issues. For the most part, We're very materially blessed people. We know that. So how do we know that our happiness is rooted and grounded in Christ and not in our circumstances and our things? The only way we'll know is if trials creep into our life. Now, that doesn't mean you run out and become destitute and starving and friendless and weeping all the time. To be happy, the monastic lifestyle does not lead to happiness. Martin Luther discovered that the hard way. But it's intended to get us to reconsider the path to happiness. There are people who have nothing, this world says, is required to bring happiness. And there's some of the happiest people you'll ever meet. Of course, we also know some people who don't have the things of this world and are miserable because they think, I can't be happy until I have the things of this world. And then there's this fourth category which most of us fall into. We have a lot of the things of this world that are supposed to bring happiness and yet, because we know we have Jesus, we're free to enjoy those things in the right way. At least we'd all like to think we're in that category. I mean, really, if I had to choose one of the four categories, I'll take happy in Jesus and materially blessed. Come on, be honest. That's the category you'd like to be in as well. And so sometimes i like, i got to make sure I'm happy in Jesus so he doesn't have to take all this stuff away from me to show me where I'm truly happy. And now you're living in fear of losing these things. And that's not going to bring happiness at all, just anxiety and discontent. You know, when life's going so well, sometimes you're like, the the other shoe's got to drop. Like, things can't be this good for this long. And you start not being able to enjoy the things God has given you because you're waiting for the big test to come. Maybe the test is just, Being content in praising God and giving thanks for what you have and sharing it and being generous. Jesus says that these last two kinds of people are the only ones who are truly happy because they put Jesus first in their life. And it's not Jesus and then a close second is all your stuff. It's like there really isn't a second. It should be a whole different category, a whole different list. Jesus, and then a list of all the gravy. And so he starts his sermon by saying, Happy are the people who are poor. What? Where? When? What country? What, what world are we talking about here? Poor in spirit, meaning they humbly recognize their spiritual poverty before a holy and omnipotent God. Compared to God, if I had everything else the world has to offer and I didn't have God, I would be dirt poor. And compared to God, I am dirt poor. I have no righteousness of my own. I have no power of my own. I am utterly weak utterly incapable of doing anything to earn my salvation or to earn God's pleasure or to earn relationship with Him. So that kind of poverty is the starting place of being happy. And I know that's counterintuitive. Goodness, if I think those things about myself, I'm going to be miserable. Well, you start miserable and you work your way to happy. They find happiness in the fact that God gives grace to the humble and has promised to make believers spiritually wealthy, beyond our wildest imagination, spiritually wealthy. Paul says in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has blessed us with we already have it in christ you're you're rich beyond your wildest imaginations you're like well i can imagine pretty rich yeah but you're imagining stuff that's going to burn away we're rich in things that you that are make all the things of this world seem like nothing as Paul said, is, is rubbish. I mean, if, if God can give us these kinds of good things here, don't you think he can do something even better in heaven? You really think heaven's just a slightly better version of earth? And he says in Christ, we have that now. And so you could tap in, you, you can make withdrawals now. Go for it. You you can make withdrawals from your spiritual blessing now. It's yours. And I know for for some of us, you're like, yeah, I know that's supposed to be exciting, but it kind of reminds me of Bill Murray and Caddyshack when he says, the Dalai Lama says, when I die, I'll have total enlightenment. So I got that going for me. Right? You know, like, yeah, but he's dirt poor and nobody wants to be Bill Murray and Caddyshack. You don't want to climb all the way up to the in Tibet, to see the Dalai Lama, to have him say, here's what you get for your climb, total enlightenment, whoa, you know, how about some cash, and a nice car, and a good job that makes me feel satisfied, and a good marriage, and The problem is we haven't been to heaven. We don't know what these spiritual blessings are like, but Jesus has been there, and he's happy. So maybe he knows something we don't. We should listen to him. Jesus says, happy people are hungry. I don't do hungry well. (laughs) Don't hate me, but my metabolism is crazy fast. I need to eat constantly. I don't like doing hungry. Uh I was part of a church where they did that 30 hour famine with the youth group where you don't eat for 30 hours with the youth so you can feel what hunger. I didn't make it. <laughs> Couldn't do it. I have I have no fat to burn. So <laughs> I'm like, "Sorry, I'm going to step out." You know. So how could hungry people be Happy, that seems so cruel. Are you really going to go to a third world country where someone's dying of malnutrition and say, You should be the happiest people? No, that's not what he means. And Matthew's sermon says, Happy are those who hunger for righteousness. I just, I want God and I can't have Him because I'm unrighteous. And I can't muster up enough righteousness of my own. I'm hungering for righteousness. I'm so tired of my sin. I'm so tired of failing. Aren't you tired of your sin? are you tired of failing? Aren't you hungering for righteousness? are you hungering for the day you can worship God rightly without yourself getting in the way? I mean, sometimes for a fleeting moment, I have a great moment of worship, and then something in my mind says, wow, you're a really good worshiper. What? What? How did that get in there? I'm trying to do a good deed for someone, and for maybe five seconds I'm doing something selfless, and then I'm like, what a great person, look at me. I ruined it. Is this resonating with you? Are you tired of this? Are you hungering for righteousness? Happy people find happiness in the fact that Jesus is giving us his perfect righteousness. Happy people weep. We're not talking about tears of laughter and joy. They weep. Over what? Because I don't associate weeping with happiness. When I come home from work and my wife is weeping, I don't go, oh good, she's happy. <laughs> right? That's... You're like, uh-oh, what did I do? <laughs> No, happy people weep over their sins and the brokenness of our fallen world. You're not saying, ooh, I love the world and I want everything in it. You're like, this world has some wonderful things to offer, but it it doesn't last. And I see fallenness and brokenness and sin and hatred and covetousness and jealousy and anger. And it makes me weep. And it should make you weep too. Oh, there's days where you have good days. But then there's days where the world just makes you want to cry. And that's a good thing. We should weep over sin. Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. Because the wages of sin is death. And there would have to be no death if there was no sin. And so Jesus wept. And would you say Jesus is an unhappy person? No, he's a happy person. If God isn't happy, there's no hope for any of us. If he hasn't found happiness, how are we going to find it? If this is the first time you've ever heard a, a preacher say, God is happy, I'm sorry for you. I don't know who told you he wasn't happy. Oh, he's not happy with our sin, but in and of himself, in the, in the Godhead, he is, he's happy. Disappointed with sin, rightly angered about it, but it doesn't mean he's not ultimately happy. What a high view of ourselves to say, God can't be happy because of our fallenness. So we control God's emotions? Oh, get over yourself. He can manage to be happy aside from us. I'm just glad he didn't just throw us aside and say, I'm done with these people. I'm going to go be happy. Praise God he sent his son so we could all be happy. Happy people are hated and ostracized, Jesus says. What? I know some people wear hatred as a badge of honor. You're sick and you need help. Most of us want to be loved and accepted and have friends. Jesus says, truly happy people are hated and ostracized for the sake of Jesus. If you love Jesus and the world can't stand you, that's on them. You keep being a Jesus freak. Not a freak. That doesn't get you any credit in heaven. If if you need an attitude adjustment, if you're a jerk, and people hate you for it, repent but if people reject you because of your love for jesus then you can still be happy you can grieve for the world wow how sad for them and we see that in our culture right the anger of unbelievers today is crazy we haven't seen this kind of anger in our country for a long time hatred towards christians and they don't want you to be happy, and they're going to do whatever they can to make you unhappy. They're going to sue you and mock you and, and scorn your faith. And yet Jesus says we could be happy in spite of all that. So in light of these truths, then, how do you actually live this out? How, how, do, you, how do you do this thing? So Jesus is going to get real practical here. We're going to give you a, a, a list here. All right. Luke 6:27 Jesus says, "But I say to you who hear, so those who are listening and believe, not just who can hear cuz your ears work, who hear because you have faith in Jesus. Love your enemies." Ooh, boy, he started with a hard one, right? Couldn't we have worked our way up to that one? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Happy Christians learn to love their enemies and pray for their salvation. In the immediate context, enemies are unbelievers. Remember that Romans 5 tells us that before we put our faith in Christ, we were what? Enemies of God. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still enemies, sinners, Christ died for us. And so, you can love your enemies because Jesus, through no merit of your own, moved you from the category of enemy to friend. And so, you can have compassion and pity on those who are enemies of god now i think we can also broaden the definition of enemy to anyone who is currently acting like an unbeliever in your life because when we sin isn't that what we're doing we're acting like unbelievers and so we could take this teaching and say yeah when 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 my friend or my spouse or my children, or someone really said something really hurtful. I can love my enemy. Now be careful here. i got a huge warning for you. Huge warning. Fallen human nature tempts us to think of everyone else as the enemy and ourselves as the victim. For some of you, this is a a super difficult temptation. Everyone's the enemy. Everyone's out to get you. Everyone's the problem. And you hear these words from Jesus and you're like, Jesus finally gets me. It's us against the world. If you're surrounded by believers, and I believe this church is filled with wonderful, humble, not perfect, but humble people walking with the Lord, if there's lots of people who you consider to be your enemy here, it's probably you probably you. you need to look in the mirror and see what is going on that is making you so hard for other people to be around it's okay but the lord will show you and he'll be gentle but he'll be honest and he'll give you the grace to change and people here will give you grace too because they know they need grace too so be careful that you don't automatically label everyone around you an enemy just because they don't meet your expectations or agree with all your ideas. That's not what an enemy is. Do you really want to think of your spouse or your neighbor or your children as your perpetual enemy? you really think that's going to bring happiness? I know it makes you feel vindicated and justified, but it won't make you happy. And Jesus, I guarantee, isn't pleased with that attitude. You don't want to be thought of as an enemy, do you? In fact, there's no worse feeling than somebody who accuses you of being their enemy, judging your heart. I I, I don't, I don't hate you. I didn't hurt you. I didn't mean to hurt you. Very easy to level accusations against people and make them your enemy. Because they committed what you thought was a sin of omission. You say, well, what did I do? Well, it's not what you did, it's what you didn't do. Oh, goodness, if I'm going to be held at fault for everything I didn't do, I'm in trouble. I'll, I'll never live up to anybody's standards in that regard. Number two, happy Christians learn not to hold grudges over personal offenses. Happy Christians learn not to hold grudges over personal offenses. Jesus says, whoever hits you on the cheek... Offer him the other also. That's hard to do. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Okay, what's going on here? Should we let people beat us up? Should we let people steal from us? No, that would violate other portions of Scripture. What's the point here? When you're publicly dishonored, and you feel the burning starting, and the, oh, I need to get even, and Jesus says it's not worth it. And if you're a believer in Christ, eventually someone's going to treat you the way Jesus was treated. And he was mocked, and he was scorned, and he was kicked out of the synagogue, and what they would often to do when you were kicked out of the synagogue is publicly slap you across The face. And in an honor-shame culture, Jesus saying, turn the other cheek, almost seems impossible. Not so much for us because, you know, there's still enough Christianity in our culture that we understand some humility and I can walk away from it. But even then, it's hard to. And in a post-Christian culture that we're living in where Puffing up your chest and getting in someone's face and getting even is the rule of the day. This is really hard teaching. Really? Turn the other cheek? Allow myself to be insulted again? It's on them, not on you. That's what Jesus is saying here. They have to answer to God. If you're being insulted and you're living humbly and following Jesus... And living according to his, his teachings, and you get insulted or mocked, what are you going to do? Repay evil with evil? Get bitter and angry? Do you know any happy, bitter people? It never works out well. And it certainly doesn't adorn the gospel. The world's filled with bitterness and wanting to get even. So if we're going to act that way as Christians, what's going to draw people to Christ? Another important note then, the command to turn the other cheek refers to not taking revenge when you are insulted or kicked out of the synagogue for following Jesus. It is not a command to allow yourself to be beaten or robbed. Christians have a right to protect themselves, their families, and their property. The command, though, keeps us from becoming bitter and vindictive when our pride is wounded. You think about gang violence and wars. How much of it, at the root of it, is people just seething with anger? have got to get even. Of course, then you get even, and then that side says, well, now we need to get even, and Blood feud happens. On a smaller scale, when you get in a fight at home, who's going to turn the other cheek first? Because that's what's going to... Are you raising your hand, Michael? Yeah. <laughs> hey, good for you. Wow. He just had an itch on his head. but. But that's what we need to do. Turn the other cheek. You don't have to get even. You don't have to get mad. You don't have to get all defensive. Just, it's not being a doormat. When have you ever gotten in an argument with a family member where you had an airtight, logical case and you won? I, either way. Nobody wins there. Third, happy Christians hold on to their possessions lightly. Jesus says, Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Again, another important note here, he is not saying that Christians can't make reasonable and lawful efforts to reclaim your stolen property. Jesus is not advocating lawlessness. What he is advocating is that Christians should be generous and patient and not hold on to their possessions so tightly. And, you know, I left the garage door open and my $20 shovel's missing. What are you going to be, angry and bitter? For the next year or two, over a shovel? The thief just stole way more than your shovel. You let him steal your happiness. What, you're going to be Sherlock Holmes, you're going to go on Facebook, and you're not going to rest until you get your shovel back. You're not going to loan anything to anyone because you may not get it back, and and we know that happens. So every time you see them at church, you're just like... "Mm -hmm." You loan someone money, and you say, oh, you don't need to pay me back. And then you see, they, they, you see him at the most expensive restaurant in town the next day, and you're like, what? I thought you were going to use this for clothing. or Let it go. It's God's money. If they're using it unwisely, that's between them and the Lord. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't ever be discerning. When our deacons help people in the community, we have to have certain rules. Otherwise, you will just keep coming for another handout, another handout, another handout. So, it's just the idea that there's more important things in this universe than your stuff. And if somebody defrauds, you leave room for God to avenge. That has a much better way of avenging than You do. He'll get the timing right. He'll get the circumstances right. And he'll teach the other person a lesson through it. You're just doing it to get even. And because you're seething inside that somebody got away with something. Let me tell you a story, a personal story, about a time I was just seething Made me cry the first service, I'll probably cry again, so bear with me. When we first moved to Tehachapi here, moved into our rental house, Ella, who was four at the time, stuck a key in an electrical outlet. And uh, it was on a Sunday, so I was at church, and Jennifer couldn't get a hold of me. And we end up at Tehachapi Hospital, and the doctor's afraid she's got internal electrical burns And so he wants to transport her down to the Sherman Oaks Burn Center. Now, I'm no doctor, but I did work in the medical field. I was an EMT. I'm like, she looks fine. She's happy. She's smiling. She's drinking water. She's passing fluids. She's hungry. She wanted a granola bar. (laughs) They started an IV on her. I'm like, okay, you guys are the experts. And so, an hour later, they get her into the ambulance, and I get in my little Saturn. So I'll meet you down in Sherman Oaks. We used to live down there, so I knew where it was. In fact, as an EMT, I probably delivered people to that hospital before. And somehow, I beat the ambulance there. <laughs> it was dark, and this trauma team's waiting. And finally in comes Ellis sitting on the gurney. (laughs) And they're like, where's the burn victim? This is it. And they're like, that's electrical soot. And they wiped it off with peroxide and sent us home. And we're like, wow. It's like 2 in the morning now and, you know. And at first you're like, Whatever. I'm glad she's okay. And then the bills come. And that's not funny. You know how much a ambulance bill is to go to Sherman Oaks? Three grand. $3,000. I mean, that kind of bill would just sink our family at, at that time when we first got here to the church. And uh, I'm like, what took you guys so long? And Jennifer says... Well, I had to go to the bathroom, so they stopped at the In-N-Out burger. And I'm like, they let her go to the bathroom at In-N-Out? Well, actually, no, because her IV pole wouldn't fit in there. So they just had her pee in the bushes outside the ambulance. <laughs> so I paid $3,000 for a non-trauma transport. And to add insult to injury, you made my daughter pee in the bushes, which I'm not here to insult the ambulance company. I won't even tell you the name of it, but I know there's only one. (laughs) But I wanted to haul them into court. (laughs) I was mad. And so I called them up, and I said, I am not paying this bill. They said, but we transported your daughter. You have to pay the bill. I'm like, your own guy's when they got in the ambulance, told my wife, don't worry, this isn't a trauma transport. Your daughter's fine. We call that doctor, Dr. Bozo. He transports everybody. He doesn't work there anymore. And then they made her pee in the bush. And these, these guys were good guys, and they just did something stupid. And you just let it, you know, you call, and I'm sure they reprimanded them. And, but I could not let it go, and every time I saw an orange am, ambulance around town, I just got so angry. So angry. I called him and said, I'm not paying this bill, and this is what happened. And the, and the operator said, excuse me? They made her do what? Can you hold? <laughs> and next thing you know, I'm talking to the vice president. And he, he's mortified. And He's like, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I'm like, yes, you will. And I get a call back the next day, not from the Vice President or the President, who apparently was too busy mayoring <laughs> And they said, this "Is Mr. Whitney? Yes." By any chance was Gabriella ever on MediCal?" Yeah, back when I was in seminary, just for a few months. Well, guess what? she's still in the system. So MediCal will pay the whole bill, case closed. No apology. At that point, I was just glad I didn't have to pay the three grand, so I hung up, but then the bitterness started. You know, now I'm mad that you taxpayers are paying for this. They should have comped it, at least. And I really should have had somebody come over and give me a face-to-face apology. That's how I would handle an error of that magnitude. So I just got more and more and more bitter to the point where I really wanted to actually sue the ambulance company. And so I called a lawyer I knew from my last church. He was the elder of the church I used to go uh, serve at in Canoga Park. Very successful, famous attorney in San Fernando Valley. Won a big case against an aerospace company. He had this amazing house. I kid you not, they had a pool in their backyard with a mountain and a water slide that went through the mountain. High school youth parties were awesome. (laughs) They had fountains with laser lights at night that would spray to the music. And he had a putting green that was modeled. It was a perfect replica of the 12th green at Augusta National. You think they were happy people? (laughs) They sure looked happy to me, and and they're some of the sweetest people you ever meet. But i got to tell you, to give you context, his, his younger son, who was a, also a UCLA grad, sweet, sweet guy, just the sweetest guy, married, newlywed, whole life in front of him, began working in um, their family invested in alternative energy, and the lab exploded, and his son died. And his older brother picked up the research after him, and their second lab exploded. And his son almost lost his life, but lost an arm and a leg and lives in chronic pain. So there's the background, and I'm seething over this ambulance company that made my daughter pee in the bushes. And he says, is Gabriella okay? Yes, she's fine. And the bill got paid for? Yes. He's like, okay, here's what you're going to do. I want you to get out a legal pad. I want you to write down all your grievances. I'm like, yeah, we're going to get them. We're going to get them, right? And he says, and then I want you to fold it up and I want you to pray over it and give it to the Lord and let it go and be happy you have your daughter and go be happy and let God take care of the ambulance company. I'm like, really? That's what a lawyer's told me to do? Yeah, a lawyer who loves Jesus. There are some. <laughs> wow. And it changed everything immediately. All the bitterness gone. I don't know why I'd gotten so upset. And you're probably upset about things today that you don't even remember why you're upset. So let it go. Be happy in Jesus. He'll sort it all out in the end. You're not the judge and the jury. When we look at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, Matthew talks to us, tells us what Jesus taught about possessions. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. What are treasures in heaven? The joy of your salvation, that can't be taken from you. These spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Friends that you've won for Christ. Won't that be exciting to meet people you led to the Lord? People you prayed for and you never found out what happened and, and you'll meet them. in. That's treasure in heaven. Good deeds you've done in the name of Christ. Happy people serve, and they give, and they evangelize, and they disciple, and they pray, and they teach. And they're storing up treasure in heaven. Paul tells us that, as believers, we'll find out at a different judgment seat of Christ. Not the judgment of whether or not you're going to heaven or not. That's been taken care of on the cross. But there's a second judgment seat called the Bema Seat. And the Lord will judge all of our words and all of our deeds. And there's some kind of secondary reward waiting for us for our diligence. I don't know what they are. And in compared to the primary reward getting Jesus, it's all gravy. And yet, that's treasure in heaven. And when he tries all of our deeds and words by fire, the wood, hay, and stubble is going to burn away, but what's going to remain? Our prayers and our evangelism and our discipleship and our service and our praise and our adoration of Christ, these are the things that will stay. And then Jesus tells us to be careful here because our eyes don't work so well. Our eyes don't work so well. We don't perceive the world the right way, and we don't perceive our hearts the right way. He says the eye is the lamp of the body. And then, so then if your eye is clear, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, and because of our fallenness, we're all coming in this world with bad eyes, your whole body will be actually full of darkness, but you'll think it's light. So then, If the light that you think is light in your body is actual darkness, how great is that darkness? Because who here doesn't think they have a whole lot of light? I'm a good person. I do good things. I'm unselfish. And so be careful that you don't look at your... Works and puff yourself up in your mind as this great person because eventually you puff yourself up so much that who needs Jesus to die for me? I know I'm not supposed to say that, but if in your heart of hearts that's what you're believing, be careful. Look at all this light in me. No, your your eye's not working right. He says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Cannot serve God and money. Can't have two masters. You can serve God and have money. And there's a big difference and it's hard to tell sometimes. I've never had tons of money and I think it's because I probably couldn't handle it. And some people can handle a lot of money and they use it wisely for the kingdom. And I haven't known abject poverty either. Like the psalmist, or in the Proverbs I should say, I'm glad that God kind of keeps me in that sweet spot. Not so poor that I'm tempted to covet, but not so rich that I'm tempted to make money my God. Happy Christians aren't overly worried about temporal things. Jesus says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you'll eat or what you'll drink or your body as to what you'll put on. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? So do not worry then saying, What will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, the unbelievers, eagerly seek all these things, for your Heavenly Father knows that you need these things. Of course He knows you need to be clothed and fed. But, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. Make primary things primary, and secondary things will be added to you. I think many of us think we're living that way, but if we're truly honest with ourselves, we're saying, once I get all the secondary things in place, then I will seek first the kingdom. But I need to get my own little kingdom set up just the way that I like it. And then, you know, how can I seek first the kingdom? How can I serve? How can I give? How can I put money in the offering plate? 10% seems so unattainable. And as soon as God starts blessing me with all that stuff, then I'll serve. Then I'll give. Then I'll give sacrificially to missions. Then I'll evangelize. Then I'll disciple. Then I'll serve in the nursery. But I can't right now. You really think after God gives you all those secondary things, suddenly you're going to flip the switch and say, now I'm going to do all the things that God says are supposed to make me happy? Pursue the th- that which God says will make you happy now, and these secondary things will be added to you in God's timing and in His quantity. And you'll be happy with what He gives you. Praise God, I've got a job. Praise God, I have a paycheck. Praise God, we have food on the table. Praise God, I have clothes on my body. Praise God, I have a roof over my head. Because even if I didn't have those things, as long as I have Jesus, I have everything. Happy Christians observe the golden rule. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. I'm back in Luke now, Luke 6.31. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Hey, the the world knows, scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. How is that going to bring glory to God? How is that going to compel anyone to follow Jesus? In fact, all the other religions of the world teach, do not do the harm to others, the harm that you don't want done to you. Only Christianity teaches, actively do unto others the things you want done to you. To be happy in Jesus, you must seek to actively do good as a response to the free gift of salvation you've received. Just trying not to do evil to anyone is not the path to happiness and blessing. Look, you don't mess with me, I won't mess with you. Maybe some of your relationships have gotten to that point where you're just living in the same house and it's like, look, you don't touch my stuff, I won't touch yours. You don't yell at me, I won't yell at you. You don't get angry with me, I won't get angry. Well, now that's a marriage or relationship, that's a blessing to God and that the world would want. So don't settle for that. Don't settle for that. Do unto the other person what you would want them to do for you. Happy Christians are living for a greater reward. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. This isn't saying you can't be a banker and loan money. But, again, it's a general principle. If you're only loving people to manipulate them to get back from them what you're looking for then there's no, there's no reward there. The reward he's talking about is not that you'll earn the title sons of the Most High. When we put our faith in Christ, we're already called children of God. But as children of God, we know we don't need anything in return from others. We've got God. The reward we're looking for is for someone to respond to our kindness and our love in a way that draws them to Christ. That they're so confused about this kind of love that they've never experienced before. This supernatural love that can only be explained by a supernatural God. Who lives like that? That's what Christians ought to look like. That would be compelling to the world. That's the reward we're looking for. Is Not everyone will respond positively, but some will. But I guarantee you if, if you're unhappy and you're bitter with the world, you're not going to get anyone respond to the gospel. Why would they want unhappiness and bitterness? Number seven, happy Christians are humble. They are not judgmental, but they're merciful. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Now, the world twists this out of context. This is now the favorite verse of unbelievers everywhere. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Now, wait a minute. Does not God call us to be discerning? To call sin, sin? To lovingly confront one another in our sins? So it can't mean what the world takes it to mean. It doesn't tell us to turn a blind eye to evil. But we're not to wish judgment on anyone. I know we have imprecatory psalms. And you can pray through those psalms and give it to God and say, God, you are a faithful and just judge. You will will judge the wicked. And I'm wicked. And so thank you for having mercy on me and declaring me righteous through my faith in Christ. And in the evil in the world, God will take care of that evil. No wicked deed will go unpunished. Either Christ will pay for it or the unbeliever will have to pay for all eternity. But happy people are quick to forgive knowing that God has forgiven them much. That's, that's the general principle. Happy people are quick to forgive, quick to pardon, because we've been forgiven of so much and we did nothing to earn our pardon. Grace, grace, all Grace. Finally, then, happy Christians are hoping that many will respond positively to their love. So when Jesus says, give and it will be given to you, he's not talking about money necessarily. here. Give what? All these things he's just been talking about. Give and it will be given to you. They, meaning the unbelievers or your enemies, will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. What is what is that? You'd, you'd go to buy grain, and you'd have your your bushel, and they they pour in a measure, and then a really generous vendor would shake the basket to. You know, it looks like it's full. You know, you put flour in a measuring cup and it looks full until you kind of shake it and then it goes down. And then they put another scoop. so much so that it's running over the sides. So it's a word picture here that for some people that you treat with this kind of love and this kind of forgiveness and this kind of respect and this kind of generosity, some people will respond in kind and follow Christ and learn to love in the same way. And it's not why we do what we do, but that's one of the wonderful rewards. And isn't that... Think about one of the happiest times in your life. Somebody who you desperately wanted to come to Christ came to Christ. Wasn't that like the hap, one of the happiest days of your life? Doesn't the Bible say that when one sinner repents, there's a celebration in heaven? You, you want to know what makes God happy? And so... Invest into seeing people come to know Christ by living a life that is so compelling and so different than the world that people can't help but be like, "Where did you get this happiness?" Let me tell you about my Savior. So, here's the summary. Here's the list, in case you like to write. Number one: love your enemies. Pray for their salvation. Number two, don't hold grudges. Number three, hold on to earthly possessions lightly. Number four, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Number five, live the golden rule. Number six, relinquish your rights. Delayed gratification with the hope of a greater reward. Number seven, be humble, be forgiving, be merciful. And number eight, live for something bigger than yourself. To see God glorified and others respond to the gospel. Now, don't fool yourself. This list, you and I can't live on our own power. You just can't do it. You're going to need faith in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to live this way. And so that's why it'll be compelling because you're like, I can't do this. It's God working in and through me. He gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. This is interesting. This is from that book on happiness by Randy Alcorn that I mentioned. He mentions in there a study done by Duke University on happiness. They had realized that psychologists had been studying unhappiness and depression for so long, no one really bothered to do any huge studies on happiness. So they studied people who were happy to look for traits that they all had in common. This list. Is fascinating because it looks a whole lot like the list I just read. Here's what they found. Number one, don't hold grudges. Number two, don't dwell on past mistakes. Practice mercy. Number three, don't be anxious about things you can't control. Number four, stay in community. Don't get all angry and be a recluse. And When you're feeling down... Move towards people, not away from people. I know the temptation's like, I just need to be alone with my thoughts. Yeah, so you can spiral down deeper, deeper. No, you don't want to do that. Move towards people. Even though you don't feel like moving towards people, move towards people. Number five, refuse to wallow in self-pity. Accept the fact that nobody gets through life without misfortune. Let let go of your losses. Number six, cultivate old... I love this. Cultivate old old fashioned virtues like love <laughs> and humor and compassion and loyalty uh, these are completely secular researchers don't know the bible and they're like hey this is fascinating this is look at this is what happy people are like and number 8 find something bigger to believe in because self-centered egotistical people score lowest on any test for happiness imagine that Making it all about you and your happiness actually leads to unhappiness. Jesus said, those who lose their life for Jesus' sake, find it. Well, I want to find my life first, and then I'll get busy helping other people find theirs. No, it won't work that way. You you lose your life for Jesus' sake, and you'll find it. The sum total of these difficult commands is a person who has a happy disposition and a compelling love for others because he has placed his faith in Jesus and has received the blessed assurance of his forgiveness and acceptance. This kind of supernatural living and loving can only be explained by the empowerment of a supernatural God. Happy Christians bring glory to God and attract people to the gospel. Notice the two lists I read We're remarkably similar. But the researcher goes on to say this. Sonia, and I can't say her last name, it's like Lyubomirsky. She may be the best known happiness researcher in the world, though nobody can say her name. Um, (laughs) She admits, I don't have a religious or spiritual bone in my body. But she says the studies clearly show that religious people are happier. Her advice then, hey, if it seems natural for you to practice religion, then by all means do it. It doesn't work that way. You know that. You can't pretend there's a God because these God followers apparently are happy. It won't work that way. She's speaking in the best interest of people's happiness, but of course the solution isn't pretending to believe something if we don't. Without a personal relationship with God, we won't enjoy true peace and happiness. A naturalistic worldview that embraces randomness and ultimate meaninglessness and survival of the fittest doesn't lend itself to happiness. People want the happiness, but they don't want Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It won't work. Make Jesus your Lord and Savior. Trust and obey Him. Ha- true happiness will follow. Psychologists and self-help books often proven offer proven methods for increasing our subjective sense of happiness. It's the largest section in bookstores, the ones that are left, the self-help section. Everyone's looking for happiness. And the bookstore really only needs one book here on happiness. Jesus is commanding us to trust Him, to think like Him, to love like Him, to live like Him. At our church at Country Oaks, we say we adore Jesus by learning from Jesus so that we can love like Jesus. And that will bring happiness. This is what it means to be a disciple and to make disciples. And this leads to the happy life that we all desire. What's the song? You want to sing it with me? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Psalm 32, 1, happy are those whose lawless deeds are covered, whose sins are forgiven. Psalm 144, 15, happy are those whose God is is the Lord. Amen. You're dismissed.